Welcome to Commuting the Cosmos, where this week we're zooming out to the largest scales in the universe for an exciting new topic. In today's episode, we'll be talking about dark matter. What could it be, and why are astronomers so certain it exists anyway? Dark matter, not to be confused with dark energy, is an extra attractive thing, force or object, in the universe that helps pull everything together. Dark energy, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's some sort of anti-gravity field, some force that pushes instead of pulls, that is causing everything to move away from one another. So today we'll be talking about dark matter, and I just want to really hammer home it's completely different to dark energy. In the simplest terms, we think that dark matter exists because everywhere we look in the universe, it seems like we need extra mass to explain exactly what we're seeing. So I'll run through a few examples of this and then talk about the potential things that dark matter might be. One of the oldest pieces of evidence for dark matter comes from galaxy rotation curves. But to explain this, let's not look first at the galaxy, let's look at our solar system. We, on planet Earth, are currently orbiting the Sun at 30 kilometers per second. Mercury, which is closer to the Sun, orbits at 47 kilometers per second. Jupiter, at 13 kilometers per second. And Neptune, at around 5.5 kilometers per second. So with a central mass like the Sun that is dictating the orbits, orbital speed decreases the further out you go. If you're four times further away, you orbit at half the speed. If you're nine times further away, you orbit at one-third the speed. And this is the expected behavior when you have some sort of central mass like the Sun. So that's for a central mass, but we can do the same things if you have a disk. So a disk of stars, much like a galaxy. You can say, hey, what is the expected relationship between radius and orbital velocity? In fact, you can define any sort of mass profile that you want. So whether you're modeling the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, or the bulge at the center, or the disk, or all three together, you can figure out some sort of relationship between distance and velocity. And once you have a relationship established, as scientists we think, hey, let's go out and double check and make sure that that relationship actually holds. And we can do that by determining the radial velocity of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So this is actually a fairly simple process. You take a telescope that has an ultra-fine spectrometer on it, point it at stars, and you can get their velocity. As to how this works, uh, it's also fairly simple to understand. When you're listening to a car race, you can hear the cars coming and going. You hear the Doppler effect, that characteristic increase and then decrease in pitch as the car goes past you, like this. This is known as the Doppler effect, and it occurs because the velocity of the car causes the sound waves to either be stretched or compressed, and that changes the pitch. Now, because light is also a wave, it too suffers from the Doppler effect. The difference is, light travels much faster than sound, so the Doppler effect that you see is much less. But so long as you have good enough instruments, you can detect whether a star is coming towards you or away from you, just like you can tell if a car is coming towards you or away from you when you're listening to it in a race. To get the precision that you need, it's important to note that if we continue with the sound analogy, stars emit certain notes. 
And those notes come from the gases in the star. So hydrogen gas emits a certain set of notes that's clearly different to the notes emitted by helium or oxygen or any other atom that would commonly be found in a star's envelope. And because we know what notes these atoms should emit, we can compare that with the notes that we hear from them when you stick a telescope on them. So what this really means, if we drop the sound analogy and move back to light, is that we expect hydrogen to emit at certain wavelengths. For example, hydrogen alpha is found at 656 nanometers. If you then go and measure the location of hydrogen alpha, and say you find that it's 700 nanometers, you know that the light has been stretched. And furthermore, you know exactly how much it's been stretched by. So in that example, because the wavelength has been stretched, the star is moving away from us. You can do this with thousands of stars, all at different locations in the galaxy, and essentially map out how fast stars are orbiting the central black hole at different distances from the central black hole. You can get the radial velocity curve, which is otherwise known as a rotation curve. So let's say you do this, and you have a bunch of data right from the innermost regions of the galaxy out to as far as you can see. And you then ask yourself, does this curve fit what we would expect if there was a supermassive black hole, if there was a disk, if there was a bulge, if all the matter that we can see explains the rotation curve? And the answer is no. Even if we add up every single piece of matter that we can possibly have, it does not explain what we see. Specifically, we notice that stars that are further out, the stars that are on the edge of the galaxy, are moving far, far too fast. It would be like if Neptune in our solar system wasn't orbiting at 5.5 kilometers per second, but was still orbiting at the same speed of Earth, around 30 kilometers per second. Now, in our solar system, this would be extremely weird. We would expect Neptune to fly off into space. You know, it's moving so fast, it's not going to keep orbiting the sun, it's going to get out of here if this was the case for our solar system, we would conclude that there must be more mass than we can see, because that's the only thing that explains Neptune not flying off into space. Similarly for our galaxy, there must be more mass than we can see, even when you add up all the stars and all the gas between them. So where is all this mass? What exactly is holding our galaxy together? Why doesn't it just fly apart? And the answer is dark matter. We've done similar experiments for other galaxies that aren't the Milky Way, and we notice exactly the same thing in every single galaxy. They should be flying apart, but they're not. Something is holding everything together. To determine if this is an effect that is constrained to galaxies, or if it affects much larger structures in the universe, we can turn to gravitational lensing. Now, gravitational lensing comes in two flavors. Well, more flavors, I'll talk about two strong and weak lensing. But in general, gravitational lensing is just a phenomenon that light follows the curvature of space-time, and that can change how we see various objects. Strong lensing occurs when gravitational fields cause one object to appear as multiple objects. A classic example of this would be standing in front of a mirror and holding up your hand. You can see your hand when the light goes directly from your hand to your eye, or when the light bounces from your hand to the mirror and then into your eye. So you see two images, replace the mirror with some sort of gravitational object, and you have strong lensing. 
I think a better example would be a trampoline. So imagine if you and a friend were standing at opposite sides of a large trampoline and he's trying to just roll a marble towards you. The marble in this example represents a photon of light and the trampoline is the space-time manifold. If your friend wanted to roll a marble to you and there's nothing on the trampoline, it's fairly easy. He just rolls the marble directly towards you. But add a bowling ball into the middle of the trampoline and it's no longer quite so simple. If he tried to roll the marble directly towards you, it will fall into the bowling ball and stay there. You wouldn't ever get that marble. What your friend would have to do is either roll the marble a bit to the left and then it will curve with the trampoline and come to you or he can decide to roll it a bit to the right and then it will curve back the other way and still come to you. In this way, your friend now has two different paths that the marble can take so that it gets to you. In the strong lensing analogy, you would now see two images instead of one corresponding to whether the marble or the photon has traveled left or right. In 2D, you get these two images. When you generalize that to 3D, you actually get a ring. If you want a really cool image example of this, just go to Google and type in an Einstein ring into Google Images and you'll see some amazing examples from the Hubble Space Telescope. Imagine now if you had multiple bowling balls, one that was hollow and very light and another that was filled with steel, super heavy, and you put them both on the trampoline, not at the same time, one after the other. With the first ball, the one that's super light, your friend doesn't have to deflect the marble as much. He can just put it a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. And because the trampoline isn't too curved, the marble doesn't care too much. If you instead put the super heavy ball in such that the trampoline's almost touching the ground now, the angle at which your friend rolls the marble has to be much greater because there's so much more deflection. So in that way, you can actually use the deflection angle of what you see, so the marble or the photons, to calculate the amount of mass that would have caused such a deflection. Now, if you do this for multiple objects with multiple images, you can very quickly create a mass map of the universe. That is, you can say, hey, look at all these occurrences of strong lensing here, here, and here, and they're at these different strengths. So that tells you about the mass that's between you and the object that is emitting the light. A mass map is super useful when you're doing science, and you can get one from weak lensing as well, not just strong lensing. Weak lensing occurs when the mass isn't strong enough to cause multiple images to form, but instead simply distorts the image that you would normally see. Imagine if you went to a pool, and on the bottom of the pool there was an image. The ripples on the surface would distort the image, some parts would be stretched, some parts wouldn't be stretched, and that is a great analogy for the effect that weak lensing has. And if you know roughly what the original shape was, you can take the distorted shape that you see and figure out how much mass there must have been to distort it in the way that you see it. Fantastic, so we now have two different ways of making a mass map, and you can then go out and apply that onto various data sets. The most interesting one, I think, being the bullet cluster. The bullet cluster is made up of two clusters of galaxies. Technically, the name refers to the smaller of the two clusters, but it's essentially synonymous with both. The interesting thing is that the clusters have already passed through each other. And the effect that a cluster passing through another cluster has is different for different objects. When you take something like stars, which are astronomically tiny objects and very dense, 
They don't really care. Stars don't hit each other. They don't collide with each other. They just pass through and keep going. They get gravitationally slowed a little bit, but for the most case, they don't notice anything. Gas, on the other hand, slows down a lot, and that's because it's far more diffuse than stars, but it also interacts electromagnetically with other gas. When the two clusters passed through each other, whilst the stars kept going, the gas didn't. The gas essentially came to a stop in the middle of the two, and it remains there to this day. The gas itself is extremely hot, so it's glowing in the X-ray spectrum which means that we can actually observe it quite easily with an X-ray telescope. The other piece of information that you need to put everything together is the fact that when you look at regular matter, the vast majority of it, well over 90%, is not in stars, it's in the gas. So we know where most of the mass should be. It should be in the gas that's between these two clusters, and we can create mass maps using strong and weak lensing. And where do they tell us the mass is? Not in the gas, it's still in the clusters, which doesn't make sense if the mass itself comes from normal matter, because it can't be the stars, we can count them all up, and there's simply not enough of them. And I'm not trying to imply here that there's 20 or 30% more mass than we expect. No, it's an order of magnitude. You need many, many times the mass that you can see visibly, that is luminous matter, to explain these mass maps. And the matter that we need isn't just inside each individual galaxy, it's between the galaxies. So it's not just an effect that is found inside galaxies, it must be more than that rotation curve mass that we need to find. Now there are many more lines of evidence that support dark matter, but from here on out it gets much harder to explain them without some sort of visual aid. So I'll just bring up one final one, which is the cosmic microwave background. And this is the light that was emitted 300,000 years after the Big Bang. It's the oldest known light that we can see in the universe, and imprinted in it are the density patterns of the early universe. We can predict what these patterns would look like without dark matter, or without dark energy, or without both, and these patterns change dramatically when you change the amount of dark energy and dark matter they overwhelmingly point to dark matter being required because it has such a significant impact on the pattern that you see. At this point, I hope you're fairly convinced that there is an issue here. We have all this mass which is completely invisible and we need some sort of explanation for what we're seeing. And there are three main schools of thought about what dark matter could be. The first is simply, did we get gravity wrong? Or is there actually extra mass? If there is extra mass, is it in the form of big heavy things that we can't see, like black holes, or many small light things that simply add up to give us all the mass that we want? The first option is if we got gravity wrong. This is normally called MOND, or Modified Newtonian Dynamics, and it happens when we change gravity. If we add little things to it, or if we say that it interacts differently at different distances. The popularity of this explanation has dropped over the past couple of decades, mostly because of lines of evidence like the bullet cluster. Most versions of MOND, that is modified gravity, would still have the mass map that you find when you look at the bullet cluster putting the mass on the gas, because modified gravity says that there isn't any extra mass, we've just got our gravitational relationships just a little bit off. Which means you should still have the mass on the gas but it's not. 
There are some versions of modified gravity wherein the bullet cluster isn't a nail in the coffin, but the bullet cluster and other things like it mean that there's definitely a lot less popularity for this explanation than there used to be. The second option are called machos. That is, if it's a big heavy thing that we can't see, it might be a massive compact halo object. So massive, that makes sense, compact as in it's small and dense and heavy, and a halo object as in you find them in the halos of galaxies, so around galaxies distributed throughout them. Examples of this might be black holes, so if there are simply far more black holes than we think, they might add up and give us all this extra mass that we're missing. Luckily for us, that hypothesis makes a bunch of testable predictions. One that is quite easily testable is that they would cause microlensing. When one of these black holes passes between us and a distant source of light, such as a star or a galaxy, it would cause what's known as microlensing. Micro just being because it happens so quickly in time. But what you would see would be a quick flash of brightening for the object before it resumed its normal brightness. Also, the gravitational effects of these rogue black holes would disrupt certain systems like binary stars. So if you have two binary stars that are loosely orbiting each other, and a big heavy black hole comes along near them, chances are that they'll stop orbiting each other and fly off in different directions. So we can check for both microlensing and the presence of these loose binary systems, and that constrains how much mass could possibly be caught up in these black holes. And the answer, mostly, is not enough of it. So it doesn't look too good for the macho crowd either. And that brings us to our final potential explanation, which are WIMPs. So WIMPs are weakly interacting massive particles. Essentially, lots of very small light things that don't really talk to each other, all adding up to give us the mass that we need. This would require a new sort of particle, one that doesn't interact with electromagnetism, and one that essentially only interacts with gravity. This isn't too far-fetched. We already have very similar particles. Take neutrinos, for example. They don't really care about interactions, such that they'll pass through the entire planet without even slowing down. The issue is just they're too light and they're too fast. So neutrinos aren't a great candidate as a particle. We need something that is slower and heavier. People are looking for particles that satisfy those criteria around the event horizon of black holes, where they're hoping that dark matter particles being sucked into the black holes will sometimes collide with each other and annihilate, emitting a bright burst of light that we can see with our telescopes. The other way of hunting for dark matter is to build giant particle detectors on Earth, and play the statistics game, hoping that even if the vast, vast majority of particles pass through Earth, eventually one of them will hit and interact with the detection instrument. Currently, these experiments haven't shown any evidence for dark matter. However, this is definitely a new region of science. Hopefully though, they show some promising results, and we'll figure out exactly what dark matter is. This might take a decade or two because it's still very much an open question. If you have a new idea, feel free to let me know, and if you're right, we can share the Nobel Prize together. So that wraps up this episode, and next week I feel like it would be appropriate to cover dark energy to try and get everything dark out into the light.